Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. The Cutting Room is a part of the podcast section of The Art of the Guillotine. Each week, The Cutting Room visits editors in their cutting rooms, where they discuss their experiences and techniques. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Cutting Room. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes by searching The Cutting Room. This week, The Cutting Room will be doing things a little differently. In honor of Canada's National Day of Action on Violence Against Women, we'll be interviewing Kay Armitage. Kay Armitage is a professor of women and gender studies, as well as cinema studies, at the University of Toronto, Canada. We'll be talking to her about three female editors who have played an important role in cinema's history. Esther Shubb, Thelma Schumacher, and Arla Saar. We chose Canada's National Day, December 6, over the United Nations International Day, which is November 25th, for a very specific reason. On December 6, 1989, at L'Ecole Polytechnique de Montréal, 14 women were murdered by a man who chose to murder them simply because they were women, to commemorate these 14 women's lives ended by gender-based acts of violence. December 6th was chosen by Canada as a day to reflect on women whose lives are filled with daily violence. It is also a day to take action and stop violence against women. I chose to make this a part of the podcast because women have played an extremely important role in film editing's early development years. Some of the top film editors today are women who continue to push the boundaries of editing. I sat with Kay Armitage in her office at the University of Toronto. Kay is an accomplished filmmaker, author, and academic and has been an international programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival. She sat with me to discuss Esther Shubb, Thelma Schumacher, and Arla Saar. Thank you for joining me, Professor Armitage. When was it you realized that you wanted to work in the film industry, and how did you go about creating such a diverse career? Well, I got interested in film when I came to Toronto as a graduate student. And I, uh, I became acquainted with uh, a circle of people who were extremely knowledgeable about film. I had been raised in a small town in, in Ontario, and I'd gone to uh, university at Queen's, and I r- really, literally had seen, well, practically nothing since I left high school. And in high school, only Hollywood movies. That was my only experience. So I had no idea that there was this world out there. And then a friend uh, took me to my first Godard movie. And it was just, you know, this incredible revelation to me. Um, So then I became interested. It was a wonderful circle of friends, actually. Uh, Bob Huber, who used to run the Review Cinema, and before that, the Cinema Lumiere on College Street. Uh, and who was extremely knowledgeable about film. He would phone me up. I, this was, I was a graduate student, and he would phone me up, and he'd say, uh, okay, there's a Bud Bedeker um, movie playing at one of the Triple Bill theaters on Young Street. You've got to see Ride the High Country. Uh, I'll meet you there at 1 o'clock, you know. <laughs> and, and, I mean, people literally did this with me. And because the, the, this kind of knowledge really wasn't around. There were no cinema studies uh, programs at that time. There were no, I mean, there were uh, vague history. I don't, um, Andrew Saris's book on American, um, whatever it's called, the American O'Tour book um, was out and there were uh, uh, journals around like Sight and Sound and so on, but um, the kind of knowledge that we have now is a result of 
active research and scholarship in cinema from the early 70s to the present, um, you know, was, was just beginning then. And um, so it was, you know, people who had this knowledge and this understanding in their heads who taught me and, and uh, I've just been totally grateful for it for my whole life. And, um, and of course, because I was uh, um, a feminist, I said, well, you know, have there, where are the women filmmakers? You know, none of the names that I heard or the major figures were, were women. And so a friend and I then co-edited a special learn, uh, issue of Take One magazine on women directors. And um, then I worked on um, a women's film festival and then I started making films and I made films for about 10 years, I guess, 10 or 12, 15. And I had to stop. I for a time, I worked at the film festival, which was entirely the entire summer, taught full time at the university, and made films. And, but after my daughter was born in 1981, I knew that I had to give up one of those <laughs> jobs. <laughs> I'd like to switch gears and talk to you about Esther Shubb. How do you feel that she's helped define early Russian cinema? Yeah, she was right in the thick of it, right, in, in the 20s. She was friends with uh, Zygvertov. She knew Eisenstein very well. Uh, Pudovkin, that whole crew of revolutionary filmmakers who were developing ideas not just about uh, subject matter and what the film should be about, but about the, the language of film itself and how to make film in a revolutionary way. It's like Godard, you know, when Godard called himself the Zygvertov group when uh, in the, the 70s said it's not just making political films, it's making films politically, right? The form itself had to be uh, in line, had to be constructed in a new way. And Eisenstein developed all his theories of montage, of uh, intellectual montage, associational montage, and so on, you know, and the montage cell. And there were all kinds of debates amongst the artists who were working, uh, discussions, debates. It was a very hot uh, little circle in Moscow. And um, uh, as you probably know, Zygveritov took very different position from Eisenstein, because um, Eisenstein was working in um, basically fiction films, but a film like The Battleship Potemkin was based on real events. So there was a kind of um, uh, dramatization and staging, we might call it now reenactment, although it, it wasn't exactly that, right? uh, but it was staged and it was dramatized and it was narrativized and uh, incorporating all these uh, editing, different editing techniques that Eisenstein was developing. Zygvertov, on the other hand, um, believed that, uh, he, uh, he believed basically in cinema verite. Um, he called it Kino Glatz, uh, film truth. And that's where the 
term cinema verite comes from as we have it now. It's just the French translation of Sigvertov's phrase. And uh, Shub was more closely aligned with Sigvertov. Sigvertov had famously referred to Eisenstein's camera hooliganism. <laughs> Or was it Eisenstein who referred to Zygabertov that way? I'm not sure. I haven't got this material in a long time. But the, the, the main point I'm trying to make is that they were, they were in a, um, a close circle in which there were hot and heavy and fervent discussions about film form. And Esther Shubb was right in there with them. They, um, they refused to call the... Uh, studios, the film studios where they worked. They didn't call them studios, they insisted on calling them, them factories so that they would be seen not to be artists but to be cultural workers and workers like other people who worked in a factory. So there was that whole kind of um, wonderful revolutionary spirit that they had and uh, Esther Shubb started in the early 20s to go through the archived material, working with material that was already shot, and it was newsreels, it was not dramatic, it was, it was newsreels, it was home movies, it was uh, all kinds of footage. And uh, in, uh, she eventually got the funding and the permission to make the, the, her first movie, the fall of the Romanov dynasty in 1927, which was the 10th anniversary of the 1917 revolution. And it was the, and uh, in it she took all of this previously shot material, edited it together, inserting intertitles, because it's silent, right? Um, inserting intertitles that were very, you know, strongly ideologically opinionated, right? Uh, very uh, clear steering yeah. for the for the spectator. It was her attitude to these uh, to this footage of uh, you know the the priests or the ambassadors or the um, the high people in government taking tea in their gardens with their little lap dogs and and so on. You can almost hear a voice of God when you watch it. It's yes. Telling us where to go and how to interpret this yes. film. But nevertheless, she made this history of the, the pre-revolutionary period, the, the period leading up to the revolutionary, the Romanov dynasty. And then, um, and that was really a first. It's, um, it, it was really a new form. It is probably the most common form of documentary that we have now. I mean, this is what Ken Burns does, right? He takes, I mean, he may shoot some, but basically he's taking archival footage, stills, uh, all kinds of um, found material, more or less, and um, montaging it so that it produces some kind of an over, uh, overarching vision. Um, and uh, she really was an innovator in that sense. Um, it's very tricky to try to describe, you know, who did this, who did such and such first, and there's really no historical point in that, but uh, she was one of those originators, originating figures. 
How would you describe her approach to montage? First thing that comes to my mind is there's one shot of the bourgeois eating and drinking tea, and then they get up to leave, and Esther holds on the shot, and in comes the workers, and they clean the tables. Yeah, yeah that's a really good example. Because she doesn't do that uh, kind of slam, grand slam kind of editing that Eisenstein does. It's not, it's not really uh, spectacularly showy. It's not a it's it's not a showy it's not a fancy kind of editing by any means. It's just I mean it's it's again, um, I mean it, it's it's this gigantic task, of, uh, I mean even more gigantic than the kind of things that Arla Starr did with forty hours of film reduced to ninety minutes because she had a whole archive. Of material there, because the you know since it, certainly since 1895, uh, with the Lumiere brothers, um, and their their cameras were available and they were available all over the world, and the material was shot. Uh, you know there was tons of material, so that the the uh, problematic is going through all of this material, figuring out how, what can best work, and figuring out how you can compress it, and keeping track of all that material, right? I mean, I don't, I don't really know how she did it. I don't know whether she took uh, notes on everything she, or whether she just went intuitively, you know, with, through, a, through a viewer and said, okay, great chunk of film, I'll, put that in my bin right now, hang that in my bin right now. I, d I don't know how she did it, but it's not a showy, it's not a spectacular kind of editing on the screen, right? It's just that um, uh, uh, monumental task uh, accomplished. I noticed that there's a break in her career during the 30s. Is this similar to what happened to Eisenstein? Yeah, it happened to all of them. Um, Shamyatsky came in, uh, took over the um, Gauss Kino in um, 1935, and he really shut down everybody. And that was, I mean, Stalin was uh, coming to power at that point. Um, people were uh, being sent to Siberia, they were being sent to prison, they were committing suicide. Artists everywhere were out of luck, out of work, out of town. Um, Zygaveritov's diaries are heartbreaking to read, heartbreaking. I mean, he just, it's just one letter after another, one tale after another of, you know, um, another project which he was approaching uh, the, uh, the censors, the government people with, and being turned down, one after another. And Eisenstein was in the same boat. I mean, Eisenstein came back really in the late 40s, uh, having been uh, in Mexico, having been in, you know, sort of trying his luck in the U.S. Um, yeah, it, it happened to them all. Uh, all of them who had been associated with the Lenin uh, revolution, you know, and uh, who were considered incorrect, who were considered uh, now formalists, and instead of m making social realism, they were making art films and art theater and art music. You know, and they were 
um, yes, it was it happened to them all. Tell me about Thelma Schoonmacher. How do you feel that she helped craft the glass ceiling in film? Well, I would say she's one of the few editors whose name is universally known. Right? So that means something. I mean, think of all the other editors in the Hollywood cinema. So, I mean, that is something. Um, I can come back to the glass ceiling in a minute if you like, but I mean, she was, uh, she was an extraordinary, extraordinary person. You know, she went to um, uh, Cornell University, which is, um, it's a private university and requires, a, you know, very good standing to get in. As she, um, she studied political science and Russian at, at Cornell and she was, um, she was trying to become a diplomat. But she somehow kind of stumbled into film, really stumbled into film. And just as she did, um, she met Scorsese and they've worked together ever since. And uh, he obviously gives her, and uh, they work extremely closely together, and uh, he obviously gives her free reign when he says, you know, okay, this sequence in Raging Bull, just take it away, you know, this fight scene, <laughs> take it away. And she just goes to town in the most spectacular fashion. I mean, she's, she's certainly one of the most creative editors uh, working in the in the film industry anywhere. I mean, there, there are, of course, there are, uh, there's incredible editing in a lot of the Hong Kong films, right? House of Flying Daggers and uh, so on. Um, there's incredible editing in Wong Kar Wai's movies and also beautiful, wonderful, uh, completely unusual editing. She's, uh, I mean, she, she's really one of the very, very few who have done just beautiful, original, creative work at, in, in editing. Um, that's, uh, the glass ceiling has uh, been far from broken. There is a wonderful website um, that's uh, kept up by a um, NYU professor, Martha Clausen, I think her name is, uh, called The Celluloid Ceiling. And she keeps statistics on women in the film industry. And she, she updates her statistics every year. And she calls her statistics from a variety, an enormous variety of sources. It's a, it's a big, uh, a generous effort on her part. Um, the, uh, it's remarkable really that um, th women seem to come to prominence um, and it seems that the, the, rather than breaking the ceiling, one of the phrases that's often used is so-and-so opened the door. There's a wonderful movie made by uh, Holly Dale and Janice Cole, who are Canadian filmmakers, called Calling the Shots, and it's about women filmmakers. And in, you know, I think it was made in 1988, and in that year it seemed to be that women were finally breaking through. There were, uh, you know, Martha Coolidge had made Valley Girls, and um, 
uh, children, so-and-so, there was children of a lesser God, there were, you know, there were um, movies by women directors showing in commercial cinemas, and they were big hits. And there were women all over the world making movies in 1988. And when you watch the uh, Calling the Shots, it's this kind of heartbreaking refrain where um, Martha Coolidge will say, um, uh, Martha Coolidge will say, well, um, so-and-so opened the door. And then, you know, three interviews down, somebody will say, Martha Coolidge opened the door. And then three interviews down, somebody else will say, so-and-so opened the door. And, but clearly the perception was that, you know, basically the door slammed shut <laughs> again right after whoever opened. And it's the, it, the statistics on the celluloid ceiling are quite stunning because not only does it show kind of distinct waves, like I think 2001, then there was another um, at uh, Sundance that year, 23% uh, of the films made in competition were made by women. 23%. It's not 50%. It's not nearly uh, equivalent to the population, right? But it was a big deal. It was the year of the women. This was, you know, the most ever. I mean, we take it for granted now that uh, 20 to 25 percent of the university professors are women, that 20 to 25 percent of executives are women. But it's a big deal when 23 percent of films shown in Sundance competition are by women, right? So, I mean, we're not there yet. But so it comes in waves. There'll be a big year like 2001, and then slipping. Um, the celluloid ceiling um, statistics now are in 2007, I think, the overall sort of figure from a whole variety of statistics um, is uh, in, and this is the, the commercial uh, film industry, 6% participation of women, 6% in 2007. And it has been as high as 15% in 1996. Right? So it's slipped from over the past 10 years by a substantial amount. And even in 1996, when it was it seemed high at 15 or 16 percent, it's still only 15 or 16 percent, you know. So the celluloid ceiling is firmly, firmly in place. Now, when I was doing research for this interview, I, I, I was able to find information about Thelma Schoenmacher and Esther Schub, but I had trouble with Arlesar. It's it's shocking to me, actually, um, because I, I, I know quite a bit about Arlesar because I teach Canadian cinema and because I know have known a lot of the filmmakers and have heard them tell stories about Arlesar, but... Uh, when you go to the um, Canadian Film Encyclopedia, which is an online resource uh, produced by the reference library, the Cinematheque reference library, there's no entry on Arlosar. Her name comes up in um, texts on other films that she's worked on, but there's no entry. 
how did Arlesar help define a role for women in Canadian cinema? There was a whole generation of Canadian filmmakers who basically uh, credited her with the Canadian film industry. From the 60s on, the first film that uh, she's credited with editing was in 1956. It was an um, Alan King documentary called Skid Row. Um, but sh and she worked with Alan King a lot, uh, most notably on A Married Couple, which is a big m one of Alan King's major documentaries. And um, his other films like um, Who Has Seen the Wind, which is a drama, and and others, but um, she was um, she was a formative figure in the Canadian film industry. She was really um, she started out in television. Alan King tells this story, a really nice story of when he started uh, got his first job working in TV in in um, Vancouver. They had just opened a CBC uh, uh, channel. It, a station in Vancouver and Alan King got a job there in 1954 I think and he said one of his biggest memories was of seeing Arla Sar or hearing Arla Sar stomping running down the, the hall um, with the reel in her hand with the splices still hot and and so on I mean in 1954 they were still doing telecine they were shooting on 16 millimeter and so on, right? I'm uh, doing hot splices to get on the news, right? So running the material literally down the hall, and he met her there, and he said, and he said that everybody um, was intimidated by her, respected her completely, and he got her to work with him. Not only uh, did, did she work with him on all his films, she was the kind of Thelma Schoonmacher to. Alan King, but she also gave really generously of her time to other young filmmakers. I know that Don Owen told me years ago, it's not on her filmography, but he told me years ago that she had taught him to edit, and I'm sure that she worked perhaps uncredited on Don Owen's early films in the, in the 60s. So, I mean, she's really uh, significant, and she... Uh, I mean, here's the, the kind of gigantic task that she undertook. Alan King made this film, A Married Couple. It was in the, it was 1969. It was the heyday of cinema verite. And the, and the film was about a, he had advertised for a, a couple who were having, you know, who were willing to have their marriage uh, filmed. And... So they moved into their house and they uh, they lit everything. They pre-lit everything so that with one flip of a switch they could be lit and be shooting no matter what was going on. So over uh, the course of months, I don't know, maybe six months, he shot 40 hours of film. And this is 16, right? Uh, 40 hours of film. And he took those 40 hours to Arla Sar and said, here you go, now we need to make 90 minutes out of this. <laughs> you know, so, and she did. She shaped it, she made a, a dramatic story, she, uh, you know, out of disparate verite footage from different times, different moments, different moods, 
and the film totally holds together. It's beautifully edited. Um, and that's the kind of you know, character she was. I, uh, she's so little known about. It's really, it's really a pity, except it, she's known, of course, by the old timers. Her last film she did in 1981, Silence of the North. She worked in television, she worked in feature films, she worked a lot in documentaries. Um, she, was, she was just a great person and a very, very talented editor and conceptual editor. As you can imagine, she had to be working on a project like The Married Couple, which, I mean, created basically a new form for cinema. Editing has been a place in the industry where women have been uh, for, you know, really since the beginning of the film industry. Um, editors, I mean, the, the principal jobs, creative jobs for women have been editors, uh, to some degree screenwriters, um, and then in the, you know, and actors, and then in the costume and hair departments, right, and continuity girl. Um, which is really an editing function, the, the continuity. Um, and uh, for, um, as I said, really from the beginning, women um, have been employed in those roles or have been uh, functioned in those roles. Um, for some of them, um, they broke out of those roles and into, say, directing. Um, for example, Dorothy Arsner, who was a, an editor in the silent period in Hollywood and became the only um, uh, woman, really the only woman director in Hollywood between 1930 and 1945, the only one. Um, but she had, she had learned by, by cutting. Um, there are all kinds of stories like that. And women in Canada, um, it, it's, Canada is quite an interesting place in terms of women because um, however uh, uh, crusty old curmudgeon John Grierson may have been, he employed women. And uh, there were many women in the National Film Board from the, the John Grierson's day, 19, when, he found, uh, when it was founded in 1939, who worked very, very uh, creatively through the 40s and 50s. So there's a, uh, there's a sense in which uh, there had been a strong base of women working particularly in those jobs, in documentary um, and, and even in directing in the National Film Board. Arla Starr was, um, Alan King described her as being frighteningly severe passionately devoted to film were good scotch and poker, but she was also intensely shy with a tendency to stutter under stress. So she, she didn't move into directing as she might well have been capable of doing, but perhaps it was this shyness um, and certainly um, in the 50s and 60s, there were really no feature films being, or, or but there were lots of, of documentaries being made in Canada. She might very well have directed documentaries, but she didn't, perhaps because of this intense shyness, this stuttering, that really, you know, editing, well, as you know, I mean, if I, I, before 
um, before digital online editing. I mean, an editor was in a little room, you know, in the dark with no windows for, you know, months and months and months, logging, you know, the little ends of the, you know. Um, and uh, so it was a, it was a very uh, solitary job and a very uh, intensely focused job. Uh, I mean, there's nothing like cutting film, right? Real yeah. film for that. It's tactile. Well, it's it's not only tactile, but it's you know if if you screw up, uh, you know, it's it, it can be really problematic. So I mean, if you lose that end of that scene and you know you didn't put your trims back properly, you know, I mean, it's very very focused and also just. I mean, cutting it to, to go over again and again uh, a cut and without losing your vision, without losing your, you know, that fresh pair of eyes every time you see it. Um, it's, it's an intensely focused art and uh, it may not, I don't know, she seemed to have uh, thrived and excelled in, in that. and perhaps didn't care to move out of that. Um, still, you know, in this auteur-driven industry now, as, and it's become more and more auteur-driven since the 60s, since the, since the 70s. Um, it's the director who tends to get the attention and the credit. Um, so I, I don't, I mean, the fact that you could hardly find out any information suggests to me that she didn't have much of an impact in leading the way for women. It's the same with, um, you know, uh, African Americans or African Canadians. It's it's systemic. Um, it's it's uh, it's very very difficult. For, I mean, there's nothing like equality, and in fact, not even equity around women. You know, women still earn less than 80, 80 cents on the male dollar. The salary differentials are at least 20% uh, across the board. At the university even, where, you know, it's supposed to be, you know, egalitarian, right? Um, it, it's, it's systemic, and it would, uh, you know, I, I don't think of it necessarily as attitudinal and I don't think of it as being possibly broken down by a few heroic figures you know it's much bigger than that we've been you know uh, I mean you, you can think about the so-called third wave or the second wave of feminism since you know the the late 60s um, through the 80s, and as far as some of us are concerned, it, you know, never dropped off <laughs> and it kept going from the, you know, basically mid-60s when Betty Friedan published her book, The Feminine Mystique, to the present, it's, you know, 40 years of struggle and has, it's had some impact. It's had some impact. I mean, in the university, we now have women faculty at about 20 to 25 percent. Still earning less than men, but 
at least they're there and they're earning. And you know, you look at the upper levels of the university, and there are the interim provost is a woman, and the uh, you know there are women vice presidents and so on. Um, so there has been change, but it's in a in a huge and profit. I mean, and th uh, there has been change, and that's in the in the public sector, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where as institutions, universities are expected to behave in certain ways, right? Uh, in an enormous profit-oriented industry like the film industry, those kinds of considerations are not don't come into play. Just they just don't. And as I say, a few heroic figures are not going to lead them. You know, not going to make a huge difference. Now I'm going to ask you what I ask everyone: um, What is your favorite guilty pleasure film? I, I, when people ask me my favorite films, my favorites change all the time. My, I, I, I don't go back to films over and over again. I, I never have. I mean, there are a few films that I uh, treasure in my head, but there's nothing guilty about them. I mean, Godard films, I don't have to feel guilty about that. <laughs> but I, I don't have any kind of a trashy, sucky film that, you know, I go back to and I don't. No. Um, um, I, I would, I guess I'd have to say my guilty pleasure films are whatever's on TV that night when I go to bed. <laughs> I'd like to thank my guest, Kay Armitage. I'd also like to thank my producer, Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.